Chapter Twenty Five of Tests of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tests of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Phase the Fourth, the Consequence, Chapter Twenty Five. Clare, restless, went out into the dusk when evening drew on, she who had won him having retired to her chamber. The night was as sultry as the day. There was no coolness after dark unless on the grass. Roads, garden paths, the house-fronts, the barton walls were warm as hearths, and reflected the noontide temperature into the noctambulist's face. He sat in the east gate of the dairy-yard, and knew not what to think of himself. Feeling had indeed smothered judgment that day. Since the sudden embrace three hours before, the twain had kept apart. She seemed stilled, almost alarmed, at what had occurred, while the novelty, unpremeditation, mastery of circumstance disquieted him, palpitating contemplated being that he was, he could hardly realise their true relations to each other as yet, and what their mutual bearing should be before third parties henceforward. Angel had come as pupil to this dairy in the idea that his temporary residence here was to be the merest episode in his life, soon passed through and easily forgotten. He had come as to a place from which, as to a screened alcove, he could calmly view the absorbing world without, and apostrophizing it with Walt Whitman, crowds of men and women attired in the usual costumes, how curious you are to me, resolve upon a plan for plunging into that world anew. But behold, the absorbing scene had been imported hither. What had been the engrossing world had dissolved into an uninteresting outer dumb-show, while here, in this apparently dim and impassioned place, novelty had volcanically started up, as it had never for him started up elsewhere. Every window of the house being open, Clare could hear across the yard each trivial sound of the retiring household. That dairy-house, so humble, so insignificant, so purely to him a place of constrained sojourn that he had never hitherto deemed it of sufficient importance to be reconnoitred as an object of any quality whatever in the landscape. What was it now? The aged and lichened brick gables breathed forth, stay. The windows smiled, the door coaxed and beckoned, the creeper blushed confederacy. A personality within it was so far-reaching in her influence as to spread into and make the bricks, mortar, and whole overhanging sky throb with a burning sensibility. Whose was this mighty personality? A milkmaid's. It was amazing, indeed, to find how great a matter the life of the obscure dairy had become to him. And though new love was to be held partly responsible for this, it was not solely so. Many besides Angel have learned that the magnitude of lives is not as to their external displacements, but as to their subjective experiences. 
the impressionable peasant leaves a larger, fuller, more dramatic life than the pachydermatous king. Looking at it thus, he found that life was to be seen of the same magnitude here as elsewhere. Despite his heterodoxy, faults and weaknesses, Clare was a man of conscience. Tess was no insignificant creature to toy with and dismiss, but a woman living her precious life, a life which, to herself who endured or enjoyed it, possessed as great a dimension as the life of the mightiest to himself. Upon her sensations the whole world depended to Tess. Through her existence all her fellow-creatures existed to her. The universe itself only came into being for Tess on the particular day in the particular year in which she was born. This consciousness upon which she had intruded was the single opportunity of existence ever vouchsafed to Tess by an unsympathetic first cause, her all, her every and only chance. How then should he look upon her as of less consequence than himself? as a pretty trifle to caress and grow weary of, and not deal in the great seriousness with the affection which he knew that he had awakened in her, so fervid and so impressionable as she was under her reserve, in order that it might not agonize and wreck her. To encounter her daily in the accustomed manner would be to develop what had begun. Living in such close relations, to meet meant to fall into endearment flesh and blood could not resist it, and having arrived at no conclusion as to the issue of such a tendency, he decided to hold aloof, for the present, from occupations in which they would be mutually engaged. As yet the harm done was small. But it was not easy to carry out the resolution never to approach her. He was driven towards her by every heave of his pulse. He thought he would go and see his friends it might be possible to sound them upon this. In less than five months his term here would have ended, and after a few additional months spent upon other farms he would be fully equipped in agricultural knowledge, and in a position to start on his own account. Would not a farmer want a wife? And should a farmer's wife be a drawing-room wax figure, or a woman who understood farming? Notwithstanding the pleasing answer returned to him by the silence, he resolved to go his journey. One morning, when they sat down at breakfast at Talbothoy's dairy, some maid observed that she had not seen anything of Mr. Clare that day. "'Oh, no,' said Dairyman Crick. "'Mr. Clare has gone home to Eminster to spend a few days with his kinfolk.' For four impassioned ones around that table the sunshine of the morning went out at a stroke, and the birds muffled their song but neither girl by word or gesture revealed her blankness. "'He's getting on towards the end of his time with me,' added the dairyman, with a phlegm which unconsciously was brutal. "'And so, I suppose, he is beginning to see about his plans elsewhere.' "'How much longer is he to bide here?' asked Is Hewitt, the only one of the gloom-stricken bevy who could trust her voice with the question. The others waited for the dairyman's answer, as if their lives hung upon it. Retty, with parted lips, gazing on the tablecloth, Marian with heat added to her redness, Tess throbbing and looking out at the meads. 
"'Well, I can't mind that exact day without looking at my memorandum-book,' replied Crick, with the same intolerable unconcern. "'And even that may be altered a bit. He'll bide to get a little practice in the carving out of the straw-yard for certain. He'll hang on till the end of the year, I should say.' Four months or so of torturing ecstasy in his society, of pleasure girded about with pain, after that the blackness of unutterable night. At this moment of the morning Angel Clare was riding along a narrow lane ten miles distance from the breakfasters, in the direction of his father's vicarage at Emminster, carrying, as well as he could, a little basket which contained some black puddings and a bottle of mead, sent by Mrs. Crick, with her kind regards to his parents. The white lane stretched before him and his eyes were upon it, but they were staring into the next year, and not at the lane. He loved her. Ought he to marry her? Dared he to marry her? What would his mother and brothers say? What would he himself say in a couple of years after the event? That would depend upon whether the germs of staunch comradeship underlay the temporary emotion, or whether it were a sensuous joy in her form only with no substratum of everlastingness. His father's hill-surrounded little town, the Tudor church-tower of red stone, the clump of trees near the vicarage, came at last into view beneath him, and he rode down towards the well-known gate. Casting a glance in the direction of the church before entering his home, he beheld, standing by the vestry door, a group of girls, ages between twelve and sixteen, apparently awaiting the arrival of some other one, who in a moment became visible, a figure somewhat older than the schoolgirls, wearing a broad-brimmed hat and highly starched cambric morning-gown, with a couple of books in her hand. Clare knew her well. He could not be sure that she observed him. He hoped she did not, so as to render it unnecessary that he should go and speak to her, blameless creature that she was. An overpowering reluctance to greet her made him decide that she had not seen him. The young lady was Miss Mercy Chant, the only daughter of his father's neighbour and friend, whom it was his parents' quiet hope that he might wed some day. She was great at antinomianism and Bible classes, and was plainly going to hold a class now. Clare's mind flew to the impassioned, summer-steeped heathens of the Var Vale their rosy faces caught-patched with cow-droppings, and to one the most impassioned of them all. It was on the impulse of the moment that he had resolved to trot over to Emminster, and hence had not written to apprise his father and mother, aiming, however, to arrive about the breakfast-hour, before they should have gone out to their parish duties. He was a little late, and they had already sat down to the morning meal. The group at table jumped up to welcome him as soon as he entered. They were his father and mother, his brother, the Reverend Felix, curate at a town in the adjoining county, home for the inside of a fortnight, and his other brother, the Reverend Cuthbert, the classical scholar, and fellow and dean of his college, down from Cambridge for the long vacation. His mother appeared in a cap and silver spectacles, and his father looked what, in fact, he was an earnest, God-fearing man, somewhat gaunt, in years about sixty-five, his pale face lined with thought and purpose. 
Over their heads hung the picture of Angel's sister, the eldest of the family, sixteen years his senior, who had married a missionary and gone out to Africa. Old Mr. Clare was a clergyman of a type which, within the last twenty years, has well-nigh dropped out of contemporary life. A spiritual descendant in the direct line from Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Calvin, an evangelical of the evangelicals, a conversionist, a man of apostolic simplicity in life and thought, he had in his raw youth made up his mind once and for all on the deeper questions of existence, and admitted no further reasoning on them henceforward. He was regarded even by those of his own date and school of thinking as extreme, while, on the other hand, those totally opposed to him were unwillingly won to admiration for his thoroughness, and for the remarkable power he showed in dismissing all question as to principles in his energy for applying them. He loved Paul of Tarsus, liked St. John, hated St. James as much as he dared, and regarded with mixed feelings Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. The New Testament was less a Christiad than a Pauliad to his intelligence, less an argument than an intoxication. His creed of determinism was such that it almost amounted to a vice, and quite amounted, on its negative side, to a remunerative philosophy which had cousinship with that of Schopenhauer and Lepardi. He despised the canons and the rubric, swore by the articles, and deemed himself consistent through the whole category, which, in a way, he might have been. One thing he certainly was—sincere. To the aesthetic, sensuous, pagan pleasure in natural life and lush womanhood, which his son Angel had lately been experiencing in Var Vale, his temper would have been quite antipathetic in a high degree had he either by inquiry or imagination been able to apprehend it. Once upon a time Angel had been so unlucky as to say to his father, in a moment of irritation, that it might have resulted far better for mankind if Greece had been the source of the religion of modern civilization and not Palestine. And his father's grief was of that blank description which could not realize that there might lurk a thousandth part of a truth much less a half-truth or a whole truth, in such a proposition. He had simply preached austerely at Angel for some time after. But the kindness of his heart was such that he never resented anything for long, and welcomed his son to-day with a smile which was as candidly sweet as a child's. Angel sat down, and the place felt like home. Yet he did not so much as formally feel himself one of the family gathered there. Every time that he returned hither he was conscious of this divergence, and since he had last shared in the vicarage life it had grown even more distinctly foreign to his own than usual. Its transcendental aspirations, still unconsciously based on the geocentric view of things, a zenithal paradise, a nadiral hell, were as foreign to his own as if they had been the dreams of people on another planet. Latterly he had seen only life, felt only the great passionate pulse of existence, unwarped, uncontorted, untrammelled by those creeds which futilely attempt to check what wisdom would be content to regulate. On their part they saw a great difference in him, a growing divergence from the angel Clare of former times. 
It was chiefly a difference in his manner that they noticed just now, particularly his brothers. He was getting to behave like a farmer. He flung his legs about, the muscles of his face had grown more expressive, his eyes looked as much information as his tongue spoke, and more. The manner of the scholar had nearly disappeared, still more the manner of the drawing-room young man. A prig would have said that he had lost culture, and a prude that he had become coarse. Such was the contagion of domiciliary fellowship with the Talbothoys, nymphs, and swains. After breakfast he walked with his two brothers, non-evangelical, well-educated, hall-marked young men, correct to their remotest fibre, such unimpeachable models as are turned out yearly by the lathe of a systematic tuition. They were both somewhat short-sighted, and when it was the custom to wear a single eyeglass and a string, they wore a single eyeglass and a string. When it was the custom to wear a double-glass, they wore a double-glass. When it was the custom to wear spectacles, they wore spectacles straightway, all without reference to the particular variety of defect in their own vision. When Wordsworth was enthroned, they carried pocket-copies, and when Shelley was belittled, they allowed him to grow dusty on their shelves. When Correggio's holy families were admired, they admired Correggio's holy families. When he was decried in favour of Velasquez, they sedulously followed suit without any personal objection. If these two noticed Angel's growing social ineptness, he noticed their growing mental limitations. Felix seemed to him all church, Cuthbert all college. His diocesan synod and visitations were the mainspring of the world to the one, Cambridge to the other. Each brother candidly recognised that there were a few unimportant scores of millions of outsiders in civilised society, persons who were neither university men nor churchmen, but they were to be tolerated rather than reckoned with and respected. They were both dutiful and attentive sons, and were regular in their visits to their parents. Felix, though an offshoot from a far more recent point in the devolution of theology than his father, was less self-sacrificing and disinterested, more tolerant than his father of a contradictory opinion in its aspect as a danger to its holder, he was less ready than his father to pardon it as a slight to his own teaching. Cuthbert was, on the whole, the more liberal-minded, though with a greater subtlety. He had not so much heart. As they walked along the hillside, Angel's former feeling revived in him that whatever their advantages by comparison with himself, neither saw nor set forth life as it really was lived. Perhaps, as with many men, their opportunities of observation were not so good as their opportunities of expression. Neither had an adequate conception of the complicated forces at work outside the smooth and gentle current in which they and their associates floated. Neither saw the difference between local truth and universal truth that what the inner world said in their clerical and academic hearing was quite a different thing from what the outer world was thinking. "'I suppose it is farming or nothing for you now, my dear fellow,' Felix was saying, among other things, to his youngest brother, as he looked through his spectacles at the distant fields with sad austerity. "'And therefore we must make the best of it. 
but I do entreat you to endeavour to keep as much as possible in touch with moral ideas. Farming, of course, means roughing it externally, but high thinking may go with plain living nevertheless." "'Of course it may,' said Angel. "'Was it not proven nineteen hundred years ago, if I may trespass upon your domain a little? Why should you think, Felix, that I am likely to drop my high thinking and my moral ideals?' "'Well, I fancied from the tone of your letters and our conversation—it may be fancy only—that you were somehow losing intellectual grasp. Hasn't it struck you, Cuthbert?' "'Now, Felix,' said Angel dryly, "'we are very good friends, you know, each of us treading our allotted circles. But if it comes to intellectual grasp, I think you, as a contented dogmatist, had better leave mine alone and inquire what has become of yours." They returned down the hill to dinner, which were fixed at any time at which their father's and mother's morning work in the parish usually concluded. Convenience, as regarded afternoon callers, was the last thing to enter into the consideration of selfish Mr. and Mrs. Clare, though the three sons were sufficiently in unison on this matter to wish that their parents would conform a little to modern notions. The walk had made them hungry. Angel, in particular, who was now an outdoor man, accustomed to the profuse darpes and empte of the dairyman's somewhat coarsely laden table. But neither of the old people had arrived, and it was not till the sons were almost tired of waiting that their parents entered. The self-denying pair had been occupied in coaxing the appetites of some of their sick parishioners, whom they, somewhat inconsistently, tried to keep imprisoned in the flesh their own appetites being quite forgotten. The family sat down to table, and a frugal meal of cold viands was deposited before them. Angel looked round for Mrs. Crick's black puddings, which he had directed to be nicely grilled, as they did them at the dairy, and of which he wished his father and mother to appreciate the marvellous herbal savours as highly as he did himself. "'Ah, you are looking for the black puddings, my dear boy.' observed Clare's mother. But I am sure you will not mind doing without them, as I am sure your father and I shall not, when you know the reason. I suggested to him that we should take Mrs. Crick's kind present to the children of the man who can earn nothing just now because of his tax of delirium tremens, and he agreed that it would be a great pleasure to them. So we did." "'Of course,' said Angel, cheerfully, looking round for the mead. I found the mead so extremely alcoholic," continued his mother, that it was quite unfit for use as a beverage, but as valuable as rum or brandy in an emergency, so I have put it in my medicine-chest." "'We never drink spirits at this table on principle,' added his father. "'But uh, what shall I tell the dairyman's wife?' said Angel. "'The truth, of course,' said his father. I rather wanted to say we had enjoyed the mead and the black puddings very much. She is a kind, jolly sort of body, and is sure to ask me directly I return." Uh, "'You cannot, if we did not,' Mr. Clare answered lucidly. "'Ah, no, though that mead was a drop of pretty tipple.' "'Oh, what?' said Cuthbert and Felix both. "'Oh, tis an expression they use down at Talbothay's replied Angel, blushing. 
he felt that his parents were right in their practice, if wrong in their want of sentiment, and said no more. End of chapter 25